this is the first Sunday evening of the month, and generally on the first Sunday evening, I answer questions and answers, and uh, sometimes I have a whole lot of them, and I have to bump some of them to the next month, and sometimes I'm waiting for some really good questions to come along. But tonight is going to focus on one singular question, and uh, sometimes the previous questions and answers that I have addressed prompt some follow-up questions, and several of you have said, well, you remember a couple of months ago or last month you said this or that, and it's always good to seek the understanding of the Bible better. I want to know what God says, and I want to know it better, and I want to know it fuller, and I want a better understanding. And so this lesson is going to concentrate primarily on a theme known as antiism. And when I use that term, I don't want you to think that I am using it in a derogatory way. Uh, I will in a moment address what an anti is, but I will tell you that uh, the history of the church, particularly in the 19th and the 20th centuries, has dealt with this issue in a number of times and a number of places. In fact, in the 1940s, as my understanding, the church here had to face that issue. And because of that, it is a question that many people say, will you explain it a little bit more? And so tonight's question is just simply one question, please explain antiism. And so I'm going to begin by pointing out that the last two months, the months of December and the month of November, the questions were submitted, first of all, about eating in the building. And I addressed that one in November, and we talked about how the Bible would certainly make it permissible to eat in the building that brethren ate together because brethren often met in people's homes, and that would be the place where they would eat together. But we also then last month talked about church cooperation, how that two churches could cooperate in carrying out an activity. Uh, we talked about things such as even the Bible Bowl or things such as polishing the pulpit, or preaching the gospel like uh, the uh, International Gospel Hour, or the Gospel Broadcasting Network. All of these things are overseen by elderships and uh, is supported financially by other brethren. The definition of liberalism, as we're talking about it regarding the church, is that people are more permissive than God, that God says that you can only do this, and they say, well, you can do this or you can do that as well. Many churches decided that even though God has forbidden women to preach, to serve as elders, they decided that they're not going to be bound by those restrictions, and they're going to say, just go ahead, that's all right, you can do it. And then on the other hand, antiism is being more restrictive than God. That's saying God says it's all right to do something, and you said, no, you can't do that. And perhaps the best illustrations of these is found, first of all, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, or verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. God said, don't eat of this tree, or you will surely die. And Satan says, no, you won't surely die. Go ahead and eat. Do whatever you want to do. But when you think about the binding of things that God is not bound, I could refer you to Acts chapter 15 and verse 1, where 
Luke records what's going on in the church where there were some saying, except you are circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you can't be saved. They were adding additional elements to what it took to be saved. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, The Spirit says expressly in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now listen carefully to verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats or foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. You realize that there are some people who are saying, do what you want to do regardless of what God says. And others are saying, you must do what I say to do regardless of what one says or what God says. Now, I will tell you that when you find most of those who are in this camp, they will say that when I go to the Bible, I find a pattern and they will say that's an exclusive pattern. And I'm going to illustrate that with some of the points that we'll make. There are several different areas where people are anti. And I'm going to first of all mention these and then I'm going to go through several of them. There's the anti-church cooperation. We've dealt with that. There's the anti-eating in the building. No kitchens, no food in the building whatsoever except for a water fountain. And uh, then there are those who believe in the anti-located preacher. And then there are those who are anti-Sunday school and anti-literature. There are those who are anti-baptistry, that you shouldn't have a baptistry. There are those who are anti-multiple cups. You can only use one cup. There are those who are anti-orphan homes. And then there are those who are anti-church support for non-Christians, often referred to as saints only. There are even some others, but I'm not going to try to mention them all. There's some that are anti-contribution. In other words, that you, you can't take a contribution on a weekly basis. Some churches would embrace one or two or more of these issues. I don't believe I've met any that have embraced all of them. I grew up in an area where this was quite strong. In fact, several of my good friends in high school... And even, uh, I still know several today, uh, were a part of this. The church that I grew up in split over this issue when I was probably about seven or eight years old. So I am quite familiar with some of the issues that have been brought to bear here. So let's deal, first of all, with the anti-located preacher. The anti-located preacher began as a response to a pastor system. Approximately 200 years ago, when the church was just getting started in areas like Warren County, there were a number of men who were coming and conducting evangelistic meetings. They would have meetings under brush arbors. They would come and they would preach and then they would move and go to another location. They would establish local congregations. After congregations became established, particularly in large cities, they began to hire a man who they hired to be in charge of the whole work of the church, and they called him a pastor. And uh, that occurred in the 1860s. If you go back and you read the Firm Foundation of the Gospel Advocate, you can read about the history of this quite frequently. 
It was championed by an influential preacher by the name of Daniel Sommer. And he, it was even embraced in the gospel advocate in the early years that they argued against having a located preacher. They believed that to pay the preacher a stipulated salary, that's in other words, an agreed upon amount, is sinful. And as well as a man working for the church for an extended period of time. Now when you think about that, we're not talking about, do you believe this, that this is not a good idea, but we're saying that if you do this, you are sinning against God. Well, let me provide what I believe is a scriptural answer to this. Number one, if a preacher, can he stay at a local congregation an extended period of time? Well, if you go to Acts 18, verse 11, it says, And Paul, he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul was working with the congregation in, in Corinth and spent a, a year and a half there. You go to chapter 20 and verse 31, he stayed at Ephesus for three years. Paul said to the elders, and so I, I want you to understand they're elders now. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So I would emphasize that the time in which a person would stay, whether it's 18 months, three years, or 10 years or more, is at the decision of the eldership, not as uh, that someone could say that an extended period is wrong. For preaching to be done, there must be a preacher. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 14, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they then call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And someone says, yeah, but that's a preacher who just comes in occasionally. May I remind you that if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he said, let elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. Peter himself was an elder. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and following. So if an elder is also the one preaching and teaching, would you expect that preacher to sell his house, move and go somewhere else when he's one of the shepherds of the congregation? I don't see where that would make sense. Well, then do preachers have the right to receive wages? That is, a stipulated amount says, okay, we're going to pay you this much money to preach the gospel here. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 8, Paul said, I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. Or if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to study about this, Lord willing, next Sunday morning. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So you would see very plainly that those who preach have a right or an expectation to be paid. In Galatians 6 and verse 6, writing to the churches of Galatia, he said, Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. A gospel preacher is simply a teacher. And uh, so it is perfectly 
scriptural for a man to be paid, and it's perfectly scriptural for a man to work. And someone says, but if you have one man, then he becomes a pastor. Not necessarily. If a person understands that the preacher is not a pastor, he's not an overseer, he's not an elder, he is one who is asked to do a job and has done that under the oversight. Because if I start looking at the scriptures, it's very plain that the eldership has the oversight of the congregation. In Acts 20, verse 28, Take heed yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. You have elders and a plurality. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, The elders who are among you I exhort, whom a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, you plural, serving as overseers, plural, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly. So I would emphasize to you that the idea of a one-man pastor system is just as wrong as it could be because God never intended that one man shepherd or pastor a congregation. But to have a located preacher who preaches and teaches God's word on an ongoing basis is perfectly scriptural and fine. The second one is anti-Sunday school. Now, um, this also goes back into many years ago. And it was insisted that all the teaching must be done in the one assembly, and that one assembly men must teach only. The passages that are brought to bear on this are 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 18, going through verse 20. And Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, First of all, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you, and I in part believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And so the contention is, is that the church must come together in one place. Absolutely. When you go to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, Paul, in describing a situation of the exercise of spiritual gifts, said, let your women keep silent in the churches, for it is not permitted for them to speak. But they are to be submissive, also the law, or as the law also says. And if they want to learn anything or something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in the church. And then going to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, And I do permit not a woman to teach, nor to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So the contention is, is that we all have to come together in one place at one time, and in that assembly the women are not to be leading the services, they're not to be leading the singing, reading the scriptures, praying the prayers. They are to be in a submissive role. And to that I say, yes. That's what the scriptures teach. However, Sunday school is not in place of the worship, but is in addition to it. And you can say, well, then are you adding to God's word? No, because we see it plainly in other passages of scripture. Because the Bible talks about in Acts 20, verses 20 and 21, how I kept back nothing that was helpful 
but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. When you have people being taught individually or in a small group setting, which you have Paul doing here, he said, I would teach you publicly and from house to house. All that is being done when you have a Bible class is a small group meeting together, not the worship service, not when the Lord's Supper is being taken, not when the whole congregation comes together, but when you have a Bible study. And you can see that in a number of places. You can see that being done with a jailer. You can see that being done with Lydia. You can see that being done with Aquila and Priscilla when Apollos was being instructed in the way of the Lord more perfectly. And someone says, but you can't have a woman ever teach. But women in the church are not only permitted to teach other women, but they're encouraged to do so. We have a ladies' Bible class on Wednesday night. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, that the older women likewise be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish, and that word admonish there, you need to look it up. It talks about teaching and instructing the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, Chaste homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So if you have a situation where women are teaching women, certainly that is one which is not only um, acceptable, it's one that God would have to be done. And sometimes there are gatherings only of women. And someone says, would you ever have an occasion where just the women were getting together? In Acts 16 and verse 13, and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. If there were all women and this is a place of prayer, could women pray? Absolutely they could because they're in an assembly where they're not exercising authority over a man. You see, some argue it's wrong to use uninspired literature. Um, I've had discussions with others who believe that you shouldn't have any literature in your classroom that's not inspired. But then you'd say, what about our songbooks? Those words and those songbooks are not inspired. Many of them are spiritual songs. Ephesians 5 verse 19, even though they're not psalms, even though they're not taken from Scripture. What about the use of a concordance? What about the use of a Bible dictionary? Um, Can Bible literature be unscriptural? Absolutely. Can some of it be detrimental to the Lord's church? I would agree 100%. But just because there's an abuse of a situation doesn't mean it's not permissible to use something which is scriptural and good and right. And by the way, I might add that if you cannot have something that's uninspired, you better set the preacher down too because he's not inspired. Number three, the anti-baptistry. It's insisted that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River and thus a person should be baptized in running water. And what they mean by that is that you, you do not have a pool or some sort of small uh, area which a person that the, the water has to be moving because it says your sins are 
washed away and the idea of running water. But I haven't heard that be made much since people have come to realize that the Jewish mikvahs are found all over Israel. In fact, when we take our trips to Israel, we'll go from one place to the next. And our tour guides, if they don't, I usually will say, you know what that is? No, what is that? That's a mikvah. What is a mikvah? It's a baptistry. It's what the Jewish men would use, and Jewish women as well, they'd have seven steps in and seven steps out. It would be a pool of water for ceremonial cleansing. Many people ask, how would in Jerusalem they be able to baptize 3,000 people in one day? wouldn't be any difficulty at all. There were mikvahs all over the Temple Mount area, uh, and all of those homes, many of them would have them available there. I remember hearing when I was a student at Freed Hardeman, um, what Brother N.B. Hardeman asked one of the preachers who believed that you had to have running water. And the question Brother Hardeman asked this fellow was, he says, if we go down to the creek and the creek's running sort of dry, is it all right for us to dam up the water on this side in order to have enough water to immerse a person? He said, well, I guess if you had to do that to get enough water, that'd be okay. He said, but when we dam it up on this side, it starts running back here. Would it be all right for us to dam it up on this side and be able to bottle the water in to keep it on both sides? He said, well, yeah, I guess that'd be okay. He said, what if we build a roof over it? That's what a baptistry is, is a pool of water inside that's contained. Um, I don't hear that argument much anymore, but I have encountered it. The anti-multiple cups, uh, there's an insisting that there's no such thing as individual communion. The fact that when you use the word communion, fellowship, sharing, that there's no such thing that when we come together, we are all participating of the Lord's Supper together. And so it's a misnomer to talk about individual communion cups, that it's something we do and we share It's insisted that Jesus took the cup and used the one cup from which everyone should drink. If you go to Luke chapter 22, verse 17, verse 20, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And what they would say, you see, he just took one cup. And the fact that we all would take of that one cup and we share in that one cup would indicate that we're sharing in that one thing. But I would point out to you that they did not drink the cup. They drank the contents of the cup, which is the fruit of the vine. There's a figure of speech used here. You don't drink the cup, you drink the contents of the cup. And that's what's important, and each one of them would individually drink of that. Brother Roy Deaver, who was one of my teachers, who, by the way, 40 years ago this month, when I took a class under him on this topic, said he was invited to a one-cup congregation to speak on the subject. They wanted to be able to hear the other side. Brother Deaver was sitting on the front pew and they were serving the communion and they had the one cup. And they gave the cup to Brother Deaver to take the first part out of it. And Brother Deaver took the cup and he turned it up and drank all the contents of the cup. You may think that's a little bit sacrilegious, but he had a point he wanted to make. 
They said, Brother David, why did you do that? And he quoted Matthew chapter 26, verse 40, or 27. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, Drink ye all of it. And he said, I did exactly what the text says. I drank all of it. And they said, but that's not what he meant. He meant every one of you drink of it. He said, oh, then. So then each one of us partake of it individually. So he made his point. Next is the anti-orphan home. And this is one of the issues that was a part of the split of the congregation in which I grew up. And it was argued that this was a parallel to the missionary society because it was an institution under a board. And because it was an institution rather than being like a nuclear home with a mom and dad, it was thus unscriptural. But the missionary society is not a parallel. According to God, the missionary society has no scriptural right to even exist. A home, even an orphan home, an artificial home, does have a right to exist. And it's still a home because there is care provided to the orphans. And those artificial house parents, which there are parents, many of them do provide the care. And the church does have an obligation toward orphans. And I know there's some who don't think that. But when you go to James chapter 1 and verse 27, you have a letter written to the churches. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit the orphans and the widows in their trouble, in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Or you go to Galatians 6 and verse 10, which, by the way, I will point out to you, Chapter 6 and verse 6, let him who is taught share with him who teaches in all good things. That's to the church. They believe in paying the preacher. It is written to the churches of Galatia. He said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. And so those who are orphans deserve to be supported. Now, um, I remember, I'm going to... Before I jump ahead to this, I'm, I've tried to pare this down so I could deliver it all in one lesson. Uh, there's so much more that I have not addressed. But uh, Brother Deaver was debating a man on the subject of orphan homes. And he was discussing the, um, well, I'll, I'll just bring it up because it ties in with this next one here, the non-saints benevolence. Those who are not Christians. It's argued that all the examples in the Bible are to help only the needy saints. If you go to Romans chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those in Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. And thus it said, okay, everywhere you go, it's only helping saints. It's not helping a person who's not a Christian. But you have to remember the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And the question was coming up about how do you treat your enemies? And I want to notice verses 45 through 48. 
He said that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have to not? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. God as our example, the one we're to pattern ourselves after, looks at people who are not Christians and he provides for them the rain of the earth. He provides for them the sun that grows their crops as well. But you see, there's some who fail to see that even the money that was collected for the needy saints in Jerusalem went to more than just saints. I want you to look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. Paul said, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for your obedience uh, of your confession to the gospel of Christ. Now listen, here's the careful phrase. And for your liberal sharing with them and all men, And I'd ask the question, who is them in this passage? Obviously, you've got to go back up and look at the saints. That's your antecedent. Well, if them is the saints, who then is all men? It would have included those who were non-Christians. Now, um, Brother Roy Deaver in the class that I mentioned to you was talking about the orphan homes and about helping those who are not Christians. And the question come up about... What could be done out of the Lord's treasury? And he asked the other man, he said, Is it all right to take money out of the church treasury and buy fertilizer to feed the church lawn? And he said, Yes, that's scriptural because we can have a building and we can have a place. And then he asked, Well, then, is it all right to take money out of the church treasury to buy some cereal to feed a hungry child? And he said, No, that's not scriptural. He said, so what I see is you're saying it's all right to feed the church lawn, but it's not all right to feed a hungry orphan. He said, regardless of the arguments you make, I think most people can see through that. And that is, is that we as Christians must have a heart of compassion from the church. So God gets the glory rather than us individually. But you see, the key issues under consideration in all of this is how does God authorize How do we know what God wants us to do in our assemblies? How does God want us to conduct the church? It's not at my whim. It's not at my uh, choice. It's by what God says. But when you start thinking about how does God authorize, He gives us commands, He gives us examples, and He gives us necessary inference, or we draw conclusions based upon what He said. Sometimes people look and they see and say, that becomes an exclusive pattern. If I were to take that, I could take the command that God said to go into all the world and say, you know, every time I saw them go, they only either went by foot, by animal, or by ship. And say, okay, those are the only way we can go now. You can't ride in a car, you can't fly in a plane because those are not mentioned. And thus you've made an exclusive pattern. You see, when God tells us what to do, but he has not specified directly what we are to do, 
God gives man some latitude, some choices. And if I come along and say, the choice I like is the one that you've got to do, it's all right for you to say, I think we ought to go preach the gospel by walking. And if you want to do that, wonderful. But when you say that I have sinned because I've chosen to ride in a car, then you've made a law that God didn't make. It's just as wrong to bind what God has not bound as it is to lose what God has not loosed. And that's where we're brought in the Bible to a very important principle. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor shall you take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. God said you don't add to it, you don't take away from it. That's not just Old Testament teaching. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to the things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. Here's the bottom line, folks. We must make sure that we do what God has said, only what God has said, not more, not less. And we must make sure that that's what we teach, we practice, and that's what we um, expect of others as well. When someone binds too much, we must say, no, that's not correct. You may choose to do that yourself, but you can't bind that. On the other hand, when someone says, I want to do more, you have to say, no, if you choose to do so, you'll be in violation of God's law, and I'm not going to do that myself. This is not the kind of lesson that normally I preach to encourage people to become Christians. But it's very possible that you're here tonight and you're a person who's been searching, looking, and wanting to become a child of God. And you are encouraged by the fact that here's God's Word and there's so much in it that would encourage you to become a child of God. And if you will believe in His Son, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him and be baptized, the Lord will add you to His body, to the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. And if you're one of His children, and you're straying, you're wandering in the world, and you need to be restored, what better opportunity could you have than the one you have right now? And so if you need to respond, we're going to sing the song, Who at the Door is Standing? Would you come as together we stand and sing?